Well, let's, um, let's turn to our, our topic at hand. Um, you might remember that in our gathering on Easter, we observed this. There's this little thing in John's gospel in the resurrection. It's like he's winking at us theologically because uh, when one of the women goes uh, to, to the tomb to, to try to find Jesus so they can care for his dead body, of course, Jesus is not dead and he's come out of the grave. And one of the women mistakes Jesus for a gardener which is this little wink, but it opens up this huge idea that, that God is sort of recreating, new creation, rebirth. There's all these ideas about fresh life breaking forth. And part of that for us is to celebrate the fact that like, God hasn't given up on, on this dream of this world with soil and bodies and flesh. Like, this is the venue that God continues to bless and continues to create every day with us for us to experience him in. So starting today, we're going to go back to Genesis, open up the very first pages of our scriptures, and spend some time there in the next few weeks. And uh, having done this together with our church on Sunday, I'm like even more excited about it. So uh, let's pray one more time if you guys want, and then we'll jump in. If it helps you to like kind of put your hands on your knees or um, feet flat on the floor or breathe deep, just whatever helps you kind of collect yourself right now, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. Loving God, uh, we're, I think there's a lot of gratitude that we feel in this room right now for what you're doing through Southland City Church. So thank you. And also thank you that it's just one, it's one tiny little piece of this, this universe that you are holding together through Christ, like we read in one of Paul's letters, that you are somehow creating this world every minute of every day. It's pressing forward into the future that you have for it. And here we are a part of it. So as we open the scriptures, I pray that um, these words would find their resonance deep inside us uh, in those inner places where what is most real and true about us resides. I pray for, pray for, uh, for, for anybody who's like, I, I don't know about the Bible, I don't know about Jesus or any of that stuff. I just pray that wherever we're coming from, full of belief or full of other kinds of belief or whatever, I just pray that you'd help us to find common ground as we open the scriptures and we invite you to speak. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, you've heard this before. In the beginning, the gods got in a fight. Actually, that's not the beginning of the story. In the beginning, the gods were up there in the heavens enacting a sort of divine soap opera. Have you heard this story? And they're up there in the heavens, and the gods are having a divine soap opera because they have all these subtly violent, petty sort of energies directed at one another, and it's a little bit like a middle school playground, but it's not a middle school playground. It's the heavens, and it's the gods. And eventually, two of the gods, their conflict comes to a head, and so the god Marduk runs after the god Tiamat, kills the god Tiamat, takes the body of the god Tiamat, splits it in half, and half of Tiamat's dead corpse becomes earth, and half of Tiamat's dead corpse becomes the heavens. Well, now the gods have another problem, because they have a world, and they don't know what to do with it, and it created some chores for them. So Marduk has a plan for this too. And so Marduk goes to the offspring of Tiamat, takes one of the children of Tiamat, kills the child, takes the blood out of the dead body of the offspring of Tiamat and uses that to create you and me. Have you heard this story before? Yeah, okay, I, yeah. This is another story. This is not the one that you thought you were walking into today. Uh, the story that I'm telling right now uh, comes from the world um, that the book of Genesis also comes from. Uh, this is uh, sometimes called Enuma Elish which is uh, the, the name that scholars have given to a creation story that ancient Babylonians told. And uh, it's interesting to read this story. When this story was discovered, it sort of sent a wave through the biblical studies community. 
As people are trying to understand the book of Genesis, these very first words in our scriptures, they're trying to understand how these speak to us and what they mean to us and why they mattered so much that they've been preserved from the day that they were written down. Well, there's something about understanding the context around it that helps us understand why this book matters and what it's saying to us today, right? So I I just want to observe, before we jump into Genesis a little bit, a few things about that story, which, by the way, sounds like other stories that people have found from that time. On Sunday, I kept saying, like, we found, like, as if I was on the dig, you know what I mean? I realize that's a bit presumptuous. <laughs> Smart people in other places in the world have found these stories, and they've developed our understanding of what was going on in the world at that time. But a, a couple observations about that story before we turn to this one, like this, for example. In this story, there is a, a heaven, there's a place that has nothing to do with flesh and blood and soil, and it's been there, and there's a lot of action there. And then only at some point later in the story, then, then we have earth, And earth, by the way, ends up here, and you and I end up here out of violence, not like out of intent, certainly not out of love, right? Well, this this is an ancient story, and it's the context for Genesis, which is an ancient story. But I also think stories like Enuma Elish are still told today. Um, you, You don't have to dig very hard. You don't have to look around the world very often to discover that there are a lot of stories that are told that really are rooted in ideas that perhaps were here for reasons other than love, right? Um, if, if you believe the world was sort of originally created out of violence, then maybe you would think that the world can keep being created through violence. Maybe you believe that good futures can be created through violence if that's where all this comes from in the first place, right? And I'm not saying that all the people that perpetuate violence in the world today have maybe thought to themselves that the world came into being from violence, but there's something that happens that you either believe the world ultimately works one way or another. You ultimately believe the world can keep being created one way or another. And whether it's ancient Babylonians or you and me today, like, I think we sort of face the same choice, right? Well, into that world, uh, the book of Genesis speaks. And I, I raise all that, too, because I know a lot of us have heard the words of Genesis before And I fear that hearing them too often has made us perhaps a little too familiar. And part of my goal is for us to hear them kind of fresh, hear them theologically, hear them spiritually, like connect some dots for how they talk to us today. So now um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work through Genesis 1. You've got it in your program there. The whole thing's printed pretty much. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 or 4, I think. And we're just going to do some observing. We're going to do some like textual work, if that's okay with you guys. But I promise it's going to pay off. Deal? You guys are... (laughs) We okay? Can we get some coffee? Um, so we're going to do a little bit of work, and then I think this will all come together in a way that really matters for us. So let's just do a little observing, a little poking around the text. Let's see how it begins. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of, the God, of, of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. Well, one thing that people who've read all those other ancient stories observe is that it's peculiar that in this story, there isn't a bunch of time and place other than this time and place. That's sort of a distinctive to this story. There's not a bunch of other time and place apart from the time and place that we live in, right? On planet Earth. Like maybe in this story, the action is more heavily located right here in the world that we live in right now, the one that we can taste and touch and smell and see and hear. Uh, Another observation, that first sentence from God, God said, let there be light. There's a a scholar named Walter Brueggemann, uh, this this sort of Old Testament prophet himself, and he works on this text, and he knows this Hebrew really well, and he says that the way God speaks in this creating, 
it's not so much like, like coercive decrees. It's not like uh, a sergeant barking out orders to the universe. He says it's more like divine woo. Like, like it's, uh, he says it's evocative, it's not coercive. It's, it's like God is like wooing the world to come into existence. Like he's whispering gently to the world to come into existence. Like he's loving the world caringly into existence. Not barking out orders like a military commander, but, but as the scriptures would later show, like a father, like wooing it, beckoning it, like calling to it gently to come out to be here in this world that we see right now. Let there be. In fact, uh, another voice, another scholar, actually a Jewish scholar says, there's actually a, a divine vulnerability here which is amazing to me because this is God like showing his power. It, and there, there's power here. I mean, like, God's creating and the world's coming to be, but right there side by side with all of that power and authority, there's a certain kind of vulnerability that God puts a word out to the creation and then the creation responds. And then God puts another word out to the creation and then the creation responds. Uh, I don't know about you guys, I find that really beautiful and a little bit unexpected for how I um, thought that I understood this text before I listened to people who have better ears to hear the way these words really work. Uh, a divine sort of woo. Um, uh, in, in the structure, if, if you read through it, like the whole chapter, you start to get that there's a bit of a rhythm to it. There's patterns to it, like there was uh, evening and morning the first day, there was evening and morning the second day. There's a sort of um, structural beauty to this text, which means a lot of scholars have looked at this and they actually think that Genesis 1, at some point in Israel's history, like worked liturgically which is a fancy way of just saying that, you know how when you walked in today and we handed you a program and there were prayers and songs and communally we worked through all that together? Well, some scholars think that this text became that kind of thing for Israel, that it would have even worked in that sort of liturgical way for the people, that this isn't just like doctrine or that like this isn't somebody trying to write journalistic history, that this is like praise, that this is something mystical and spiritual and really beautiful that, that, that the Israelites came together in and let these words sort of like work over their ears when they came to worship God. Um, a sort of liturgical order to it. Now, uh, there's a, a little thing that you could read right by that shows up in a couple places, a little feature here. So, um, verse 11, I don't think we gave you guys verse numbers. That wasn't very nice. I'm sorry. That's, that's on me. Uh, verse 11, which is like probably a third of the way down the page for you or something like that. Um, we read, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. So hold on to that, seed-bearing vegetation, right? And then skip down a little further, you'll see uh, the part where God creates humankind, man and woman. And in verse 28, God says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, it's easy to, like, blow right past this, but, for example, what's going to happen if you plant a tree that has, that, that has a seed-bearing capacity? What, what are you going to have a couple years later? More trees, right? <laughs> yeah. I know this because I have, like, seven trees in my backyard that I do not want there, <laughs> and they're not there because they were there when I bought the house. They're there because I'm really bad at weeding, right? <laughs> Some of these are, like, they're, like, massive now. Um, that's what you're going to have, right? What are you going to have if a man and woman love each other and they do nothing to prevent certain things from happening? More men and women, right? You're going to have babies, yeah. Yeah, so what's interesting about this is the people that listen closely and read this text carefully, they observe that right there at the beginning of the story, it's as if God is creating something that's incomplete that's meant to grow and expand. 
So like pay attention to that for a minute. That God is creating something that in some way is like incomplete that's meant to grow and expand. Other scholars who read Genesis uh, like two and three where we read about Adam and Eve in the garden and we're gonna get there later in our time in Genesis, but Adam and Eve, they get placed in the garden of Eden. Maybe you've heard that story before. And, I've, and some scholars have even argued that there are hints in the text that Eden was meant to expand. That Eden was this little bit of cultivated land in the middle of a sort of rugged, uncultivated world and that God's intent was that Adam and Eve bearing the image of God would slowly expand the borders of that beautiful cultivated place. It's, it's, it's like um, you and I, I think we're tempted to talk about the sort of story of creation and the history of the universe and what God's been doing through all of it as if there was a time of utter perfection, static perfection, if things would have just stayed the way they were, if nobody and no thing would have moved on, everything would be okay, and our goal is to get back to that. But the problem is this story actually has embedded at the very beginning that it's, it's sort of meant to move on, it's meant to expand, it's meant to multiply, it's meant to grow a little bit. Like maybe the problem isn't that we moved on, maybe the problem is that we moved on in the wrong way. But, but I say that because I think this text, it's like, evoking a sort of uh, creative potential that today you and I still live in a world where like it's, it's not that our goal is to lock things down the way they were, that our goal in fact is to participate with God as things keep being created, as they keep expanding, as they keep growing more diverse and more beautiful. There's a certain kind of like trajectory or energy in this text. This text, it's like it's not just sitting there, it's like it's trying to go somewhere. Can you feel that? There's um there's a, a Jesuit priest named Teilhard de Chardin, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, which I feel like if you're going to write books, that's a pretty good name. And he wrote books. And um, he was a Jesuit priest. This is late 1800s through like 1955 when he died. And he was also a paleontologist. And so he has this interesting place where he's, he's discovering the world uh, through science, through, through getting his hands on the world. And, and through that, discovering how God has made things, right? And he's deeply in the text and in the theology of his church and sort of living in the intersection of those things. And um, he writes uh, this long prayer that he calls the Mass Upon the Altar of the World. Now, he's a Catholic priest, and so like any good Catholic priest, he's supposed to perform the Mass, the, the communion, the Eucharist, right? But like any good Catholic priest, you've got to do that at the, at the right place. In a church, you've got to have the right tools there that are consecrated for that thing. And he's out there in like China where he's helping to excavate what they later called Peking Man, which is like a predecessor to, to human bodies, right? And he, he's miles or hundreds of miles or thousands of miles away from a church where he could celebrate a mass. And so he writes this prayer called the Mass Upon the Altar of the World. And I don't know that it's in print anymore. I found it in a used bookstore and it just like, like hums with energy. And I wanna read to you just a little bit of what he writes. This is Chardin praying to God and when I read this, I think about this, what we're seeing in Genesis 1, that God is setting something in motion that wants to go somewhere, right? He says, God, once upon a time, men took into your temple the first fruits of their harvest, the flower of their flocks. But the offering you mysteriously need every day to appease your hunger, God, to slake your thirst, the offering that you need is nothing less than the growth of the world born ever onward in the stream of universal becoming. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. Um, like this is meant to go somewhere. That God delights in it going somewhere, right? Um, so I just want to kind of observe that. And then there's this refrain, and maybe you know it already. Maybe you've heard that God does this little bit of creating, and then he kind of steps back and looks at it for a second. And again and again in Genesis we hear, God saw that it was, yeah, some of you know it. God saw that it was good, right? Um, 
This is, this is a big deal. It's like God is creating and delighting, creating and delighting. There's a joyful energy in this text that just sort of like grips you, you know? Uh, and I've had a couple of experiences where I feel like I've had just some connection to that, not just sort of cognitively, but like really deep in my bones, you know? Like one of these, uh, it was me in Mexico a few years ago. So I had these friends uh, whose parents had a house in Mexico, like you do. <laughs> and, uh, and it was two hours north of Cabo on the Baja coast in a remote village where there's no electricity, no nothing, except they had a generator for the house and solar panels and stuff. But you drive uh, like through the mountains and around dirt roads, and eventually you come into this tiny little village that's right there on the water on the sort of inner coast of the Baja Strip with the gulf there. And we're there at the house, and guys, it is just wonderful. Like, I got my books and a pool, and I'm really happy about it. You know what I mean? So I'm just, like, loving my life, like, sitting by the pool, reading my books. And, and one of my friends who's on this trip says, hey, there's kayaks in the garage. Let's go kayaking in the ocean. And I'm thinking, let's not, because I'm really happy here right now, you know? And it's, they want to go out, and they, they point to this point. There's, there's, a, there's a mountain that comes down to the water in the distance, and the mountain meets the curve of the water, and it goes out there. And they say, we're going to go out there. And it's like from here to Goshen. And I'm like, no, thank you, you know? <laughs> and, and by the way, the, the ocean is, put, is, is coming inward, right? There's waves coming into the shore, and we're supposed to go out that way, and they want to kayak. And I'm thinking, like, I have the upper body strength of a 12-year-old girl, <laughs> which I've later found out is offensive to 12-year-old girls because they've seen... <laughs> my upper body. <laughs> and so they said to me, no, no don't worry. It, you, you don't just have to, to paddle. You can also pedal because it also has pedals. And I said, yeah, but I have the legs of a chicken, you know, so that's not going to help at all. But eventually they keep pressing at me and I'm starting to feel rude by not going along because one of the people who wants to go kayaking is the person who owns the house and I feel like I should go along. So I drag a kayak out to the water and I'm already exhausted just from that effort. And we put the kayak in the water and <laughs> it's like, Paddle as hard as I can paddle, then pedal as hard as I can pedal, and then take a breather, you know. But during the breather, the waves just push the kayak right back toward the shore. So it's like two steps forward and one step back. But eventually, like a week later, I get out to that point where they want us to be. And then I realize why they wanted to go out to the point. Because <laughs> we come around uh, that edge where that mountain sort of meets the water, and there's this huge sort of slab of rock that's like way bigger than this whole stage. And on that slab of rock are like 30 sea lions just playing out there in the wild. Yeah, so we're there in the kayaks, and we had, um, we had like snorkel gear, and so we jump into the water with them. I was later told very unwise, because <laughs> they are a bit predatory. <laughs> but like, I mean, but like we're like in the water with them, and like, you know, they're doing somersaults in the water, and they're like doing, doing their noises, you know, and just like playing together. And you, you could just feel all of this energy, right? And I was absolutely, I, I, I was overwhelmed. By, by this feeling that I had. And I remembered a book that I had been reading by a guy named Dallas Willard. And Willard writes a book called The Divine Conspiracy. Willard was a philosopher and theologian. And this book is, is sort of trying to get at the center of Jesus' message of God's kingdom and what it means to live within God's kingdom. And at one point in the book, Willard just sort of helps you think about the fact that God is always present everywhere to every beautiful thing. That God is always present everywhere to every beautiful thing. I mean, can you imagine? Like at any given instant that God is present everywhere to every beautiful thing in the entire cosmos. And Willard talks about uh, a moment where he encountered some natural beauty and he could just feel his soul welling up. And what he said he could feel was the delight of God. That like creation is delighting in God and God is delighting in creation. It's like this perpetual cycle of joy in the cosmos. And in that, you can hear God saying, it is good. 
It is good. And it was like that moment there in the water in Mexico, it's like in my bones, I could like hear God saying, it is good. It is good. And um, uh, th- this is all going somewhere, so, ho- so hold on to me, okay? Because um, all of this adds up. The action isn't um, in some other, other sort of non-bodied, unheavenly place in this story, right? Because we don't really have that in this story. And, uh, and God is, is wooing and loving the world into its being in a way, right? And there's a, there's a sort of liturgical order to it, right? Uh, the way this text is written. And there's a sort of energy that it wants to keep expanding. And there's God delighting and saying again and again, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And all of this is adding up to one big revolutionary sort of unheard of idea in the world that Genesis comes from. And this, this is another thing that's hard to hear unless we read this with ancient eyes and ancient ears. Um, but let me, let me sort of take you to where in the text it's centered, and then we'll unpack it. What's the big idea that all of this is getting to? So at the very end of Genesis, uh, we read um, Genesis 2. Do you have through? Yeah, I think you've got that there. So the very end of all this creating, we end up at the seventh day. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. The story ends with God resting. Now this is important. This isn't just um, God sort of taking a day off after a lot of hefty lifting, right? Uh, this, is, this is important. Don't miss this. God rests in Genesis uh, 2 at the end of all this creating. And in the ancient world, the gods do rest. This would be really normal for other people hearing this way of telling the story. Yeah, the gods rest in the ancient world. But here's the thing. In the ancient world, the gods always rest in a temple. In fact, that's what temples are for in the ancient world. Like secondary in a temple's purpose is people coming together to do their own sort of worshiping. The, the first thing that a temple is known for is a temple is built so that a god can rest there. So they can kind of reside there. So it can kind of be their base of operations as they order the little part of the world that they're over, right? The God rests there. Remember the story about Marduk and Tiamat that I started with? In that story, after a bunch of other creating, a temple is built and Marduk rests in the temple. And in Genesis 2, God rests. But there's a problem in Genesis 1 and 2. And the problem is this. There's no temple. Like somebody forgot to build a temple. (laughs) Unless it's not a problem at all, because here's the big idea in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, the whole world is a temple. That's the big idea. In Genesis 2, the whole world is a temple. Every inch of the universe is a temple. Every bit of it sacred. Every bit of it inhabited by God. Like the whole world is a temple. That's the big revolutionary idea. Brueggemann, that same scholar I mentioned before, he said here in this text, Israel is thinking a new thought. He says through the the faithful use of their theological imagination, they are thinking a fundamentally new thought for humanity when they say the whole world is a temple. And what's even more surprising to me about this is Israel's not in Mexico watching sea lions when when they sort of bring this story to bear on the world. This text comes from Israel in exile. 
This comes from Israel dragged into Babylon at the end of a military defeat where their identity as a nation has been ripped apart, where their religious rights have been completely abused. They've been just dragged to a place which is like a prison for them in another part of the world where they don't want to be and they don't get to be who they are or who they know themselves to be. And it's from that place that they have the guts to say the whole world is a temple. This is is like rebel art. (laughs) Like under duress. The guts to say, in spite of not being where we want to be, in spite of the story not going the way that we want it to go right now, the whole world is a temple. And that has uh, huge implications for you and me. And we can think about him if we think about Jesus for a little bit. Jesus often gets in trouble for acting in a way that's coherent with this idea. Like Jesus gets in trouble for acting in a way that makes sense if you believe the whole world is a temple. So in Jesus' time, for example, temple space is space that's not for everyone. And there might be something that people think is wrong with you, something about you might have an illness or some sort of ceremonial impurity. There might be some condition in your life that keeps you rejected outside the temple. But if the whole world is a temple, who cares, right? And so Jesus finds himself embracing people who aren't welcome in the temple, but that doesn't matter. He will put his arms around them, and he gets in trouble for that sort of thing, right? Jesus gets in trouble for using language like saying, my life now is the temple. I'm the temple of God, right? Paul, Paul has the guts to say, you church, you are now the temple of God. You are being built into a holy dwelling place for God. Some of the New Testament's biggest, best ideas, like some of the the word that it has to speak to us from the New Testament, from Jesus and the church, it's deeply tied into this ancient insight that the whole world is a temple. The whole world. The beautiful places, the ugly places. To quote uh, another great Christian thinker, there, there are no sacred places and secular places. There are sacred places and desecrated places. Those places where the holiness of that place has been violated or rejected or abused or covered up. But, but the whole world, a temple. And uh, we want to be a church that recovers the capacity to see the way that Israel saw to look around us and see temple, to see holy, to hear the divine word, it is good being spoken over the creation. It is good. We want to develop a a way of hearing that word in our bones. Like when you go to the beautiful places, I don't know what that is for you, if it's looking out over the river or the lake, whether it's someplace like at Notre Dame, I like to go to the grotto to pray. Uh, Places that have been built to help us feel the holiness, sometimes it's there, but When I go there, if I want to recover this vision, if I want to learn to see like this, then when I go to those beautiful places that hum with that holy sort of beauty, I want to remind myself what I feel and sense here is true everywhere, right? There's something I I can get my hands on here, but it's true everywhere. Everywhere I go, I want to take that awareness with me. When When I find myself in places that don't sort of have that hum, I can't feel it or hear it, I want to I meditate, I want to reflect, I want to carry this text with me and see if I can slowly open my eyes to see it more truthfully. Those places that may not feel like temple, but what if, what if hiding there, what if in the ruins of those places there's still this truth that they're part of the world that God originally looked out over and said, it is good. Also, how about this? Uh, what about you? Because man and woman are part of this divine declaration, it is good. And some of you have gotten the message from bad religion or from bad life, I don't know, that it's not good to be you. 
But this word is spoken over man and woman and trees and animals and fish and birds. It is good. Now, there's more that we have to talk about in the weeks ahead, right? I know that because this story grapples with things. It puts things in tension. We hear the divine word celebrating it is good. We'll also, you know, in the weeks ahead, hear the divine word um, mourning what is broken. I mean, those are true things as well. But this first word, it is good, it is good, it is good. And we want to be a church that develops that, that practices that awareness in the world. So we're trying something for the next week or two. It's uh, South Bend City Church's first social media campaign. <laughs> Let me explain. Um, we, we, we badly want to be a church where it's not just the preacher's voice. We want to be thoughtful about different channels, different ways of everybody speaking in, of us praying together, whether it's in person or not. And so we thought, what if, what if South Bend City Church, what if all of us, what if we went out into our world, our daily world, and what if we would maybe take a picture of someplace, um, I can't believe we're invoking the hashtag, but we are. Hashtag, uh, it is good, okay? And tag South Bend City Church, and would you write a little description about what you see there? So, for example, let's say, let's say the grotto is your place at Notre Dame. If you're not familiar, it's this beautiful uh, sort of cave-like place outdoors with candles, and that's a prayer space. Maybe that's your place, or maybe it's a lake, or maybe it's the river, or maybe it's your backyard, or maybe it's you looking out your office window in a part of the city that you love. I don't know what it is, but there's some place where you go, and, and you feel, you hear that divine word, it is good. Well, would you, like, take a picture of that? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, take a picture of it, hashtag it, it is good, tag South and City Church, and write something that helps us understand what you see there. Like what, are you, what are you connecting with there? What are you feeling there that you, that you look and you say, it is good, the world is a temple, and I feel that in this place. Or what about the places where you have a hard time seeing it or feeling it, but you're going to go there this week and try to see it differently? What about that? Maybe you'd want to share a little bit of that through this, this little exercise that we're going to do for the next week or two. Now, let's be careful about that category. Like, if it's your neighbor's front yard and it's a disaster... <laughs> <laughs> like take a picture. I hate this yard. I can't stand looking at it, but I'm here praying that God would help me see something good about my neighbor. Don't do that, right? Okay, that would not be helpful. That wouldn't be very uplifting. Um, but with your own wisdom, uh, maybe you would share some place where you very naturally hear that word, it is good, or maybe a place where you struggle to hear it, but maybe this week you're going to try to open yourself up and share how you're opening yourself up to that divine word, it is good. Um, I said this on Sunday, and I, I really mean it, and I hope it doesn't sound trivial because it's not. For some people in our church, a selfie with the words, it is good, would be the most courageous thing for you because you've often gotten the impression it's not good to be you. And so, um, so these are different ways that we could do this together. This is us sort of praying together out in the world, practicing together out in the world to, to learn to see it is good, to hear the divine word, the whole world is a temple. And then we're going to kind of like keep an eye on that and just see what comes of that. And we've got some ideas about how we might incorporate some of that back into the time when we're together. And I don't want to go too far into that, but I just want to encourage you. Like, let's get out there and um, encourage one another and help each other see and use uh, these great tools. Like, I think we're all like a little tired of how dumb social media has gotten. Like, let's do something beautiful on it for the next couple of weeks, okay? Um, and speaking of places where it's hard to see, uh, one of the places in my, my world where it's hard for me to hear the, the divine word, it is good, it doesn't feel like temple, one of those places is my driveway. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. So 
Uh, so I, I live in River Park neighborhood, and I, I really love my neighborhood. It's quirky and endearing, and um, I've been there for a long time. But uh, my driveway, like often my driveway, so there's an, it's an alley neighborhood, right? So there's a side alley and a back alley that meet at the corner of my backyard, and I've got a driveway. And by driveway, I mean like 20 feet of concrete, but you know, and then my garage. Um, but man, so often, like that, that piece of concrete is the last thing between me and rest. Do you know what I mean? Like at the end of a long day, at the end of a long trip, man, like when I think of that driveway, you know what I think of? I think of like having been someplace else in the world and a long flight in economy minus, not economy plus, but like the back row, and then landing at O'Hare and then four hours through traffic. And then, you know, I think of that one, I think of that, and then the driveway, I'm almost there, I'm almost there, I'm almost there, you know? And then I can finally get into my garage and get into my house where my dog is and my books are and then I'm happy, you know? That's how it's easy for me to think of um, my driveway there. Uh, but then this week, um, this darn text started working on me. <laughs> so I, I, I mostly work at home and have my dining room table there, which is also kind of my home office. And I, I was working specifically on this, it is good, it is good, the whole world is a temple. And thinking about especially the sort of subversive power of Israel declaring that when they're in exile, when things aren't quite the way they want them to be. And I go from my dining room table to my kitchen to get a glass of water, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this motion through the window, and I realize that over my backyard fence, I see a, a basketball uh, going up through the air. See, over the last couple of years, kids in my neighborhood have figured out that I have a basketball hoop up there, and it's slowly becoming the neighborhood basketball hoop, which I really love. Like, I'm really great with that. It's, it's nice to see something good going on there, but I, I mostly don't pay attention to it. I just, you know, if I hear screaming, I make sure they're not killing each other, and then I go back to my work, but... Um, some of you look at me like I'm negligent right now. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm in the kitchen, and I'm, I literally have this text open, and I'm thinking about how, as a community, we need to learn how to see, how to hear that divine word, especially in the places where we have a hard time hearing it. And I see that ball sailing through the air, and I, I'm like, I think I have to go out there right now. I, I, I felt that. I think I have to go out there right now. And so I did. And it's the same group of kids. They're like age 11 to 15 and like one 24-year-old. <laughs> and they're out there. And um, I walk out and I start thinking, feeling, seeing differently there. I really do. I, I remember the one night that I got home from a very long trip overseas that was really trying. And it was literally like four hours home from O'Hare and then back at the middle of the night. And I, I pull into my driveway there and my headlights are on and there's a guy sleeping in my driveway. And he scared the crap out of me. I, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I didn't expect to see a body in my driveway. And he jumped up, and I rolled my window down and asked, Can I, are you okay? Can I help you? And he actually ran off, kind of ran off before I could figure out if he needed anything at all. But I, I didn't anticipate my driveway being a place where that guy would get a night's sleep. But something about that felt okay to me. Um, and then I thought about the one day that I was, I was getting home, and I pulled into my, into my garage, and the garage door closes, and, and I'm getting out of my car, and there's a pounding on the garage door. Hey, 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 and I'm like a little scared, but I'm like, I, my, my, my garage is not attached to my house, so I can't get from my garage to my house without going out there, so I, so I go, go out, and there's a guy yelling at me, hey, an older guy. There's a, there's a bar next door to my house, bar, parking lot, alley, me, and uh, the, now that the new smoking ban's in effect, they can't smoke in there, so they smoke out in the parking lot. And he'd been out there smoking. He saw me pull in. And he says, hey, hey, 
thank you for letting those boys play basketball. I was like, oh, sure, I mean, not, no big deal at all. He said, no, 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 thank you for letting those boys play basketball. I said, you bet, man. Like, I'm really, really glad we're good. No, no, thank you for letting those boys play basketball. And he reaches into his pocket and he hands me a wad of cash and says, hey, well, you want to buy him a basketball net? I said, yeah, I think we could do that, you know. And so I'm out there with those kids. One of the kids, um, he, was, he was born with, a, with a, something with his legs so that um, ever since he was a baby, he's had uh, prosthetics from the knee down. So he's out there, he's 11 years old. Sometimes he's in a wheelchair and sometimes he has his, his metal legs. And he, he's out there shooting. And um, I, don't, I don't know these, these kids that well, but I could, I could literally just, for the first time ever, hear in my bones, even this is good. Even this, <laughs> this kind of dumpy piece of concrete. My fence is falling apart. A couple of slats have fallen out, so I can see through it like a crooked grin to my yard that's not very kempt. <laughs> and it's not Cabo in any stretch, right? But even there, um, there's this thing in River Park where the sun will cut through at like just the perfect angle at sunset. And it, um, it actually shines through the liquor store sign just down the street. <laughs> There's a peculiar but absolutely real beauty, you know? And, and I got this big old tree in my backyard, and so you can stand there and watch the guys playing basketball, and you got that big old tree and the sun cuts through. And guys, I've lived in that house for 12 years, and it's like for 12 years I missed it, you know? And this week, reading this text and thinking about these guys, I just, something inside me realized I need to go out there. And I, it's like I can hear God saying it is good. The next question, which we're gonna get to next week, it's like, now I'm asking, okay, Jesus, what, what would you lead me to do with this? Like, what's next, right? And we're going to talk more about that next week. But, um, yeah, this word, it will change things. It'll mess with you. Because <laughs> the places that you've dismissed, walked right past, those places where it's hard to hear it is good, be careful. This might creep up on you in a really beautiful and subversive way and surprise you to hear God saying, every inch of it is a temple. Every bit of it. And if Jesus comes out of the grave and the woman mistaken for a gardener, it's like God is saying, I haven't given up on that. So let's, uh, let's go do some seeing this week. Uh, whether it shows up on social media or not, like, let's just um, invite these words to rattle around inside us. It is good, it is good, the whole world is a temple. And see what might um, be awakened see what we might discover, see where that might take us in the week ahead. And then we'll come back and we'll share about it and we'll learn from one another and encourage each other and keep learning to see. Um, like usual on Tuesday nights, you're welcome to hang out with us at Baker's afterwards. If you don't know Baker's, it's in the Doubletree Hotel, which is technically right next door, but I know when you're in a building this big, it's like over there somewhere, right? Uh, but it's in the double tree, and we just kind of like to keep hanging out. So there's, uh, the church kind of takes care of getting some snacks for everyone. And then if you want to grab a drink or something and hang out, talk, get to know people. If you're here alone and you're like, I wouldn't want to walk over there alone, uh, we have a rule that we alluded to. If it's not your first time, you're a greeter. So if you're here alone, it's your first time. Good news, like we got you. We'll find a way to rope you in and make sure that you feel like you belong. And uh, we'd love to hang out with you. Um, yeah, let's, uh, let's stand to our feet if you're able. And maybe I'll, I'll give us a sort of eyes open blessing, uh, a benediction like this today. So let me look at you as I say this. 
may you discover that the whole world is a temple. May you find it in all of the ridiculous beauty that grabs your breath and takes it away. May you find it in the places where it's hardest to hear those words. May you hear God saying right now, it is good, it is good, it is very good over the whole creation, even and especially as he looks at you or as he looks at somebody far different from you. May we hear the whole human race wrapped up in the loving, delighting, wooing God who is still saying to the world, let it be, let it be, let it be. And through all of that, may we be a community of grace and peace.